morning. Welcome to Rising. Thanks for tuning in. We have a very informative show for you today. Michael Schellenberger will be joining us to talk about some international threats to free speech with respect to the ongoing news, which, of course, first we have an update on the situation in Israel and Palestine. Brianna, nice to see you. Take nice it away. Nice to see you as well. Well, Secretary of State Antony Blinken touched down in Tel Aviv yesterday, where he shored up solidarity and U.S. support for Israel's war against Hamas. Here he is speaking to press with Prime Minister Netanyahu. Let's watch. We're delivering on our word, supplying ammunition, interceptors, to replenish Israel's Iron Dome, alongside other defense material. First shipments of U.S. military support have already arrived in Israel, and more is on the way. As Israel's defense needs evolve, we will work with Congress to make sure that they're met. And I can tell you, there is overwhelming, overwhelming bipartisan support in our Congress for Israel's security. Vice President Kamala Harris gave reporters a similar message from the tarmac after touching down in, in South Carolina yesterday. There is absolutely no justification for terrorism. The president and I take very seriously our commitment to Israel and to the people of Israel to support them and in particular to give Israel what it needs to defend itself. Unfortunately, overseas, the bloodshed is continuing. Israel has formed an emergency war cabinet and called up more than 300,000 fighters from its reserves to bolster the country's response to this weekend's terror. With a potentially months-long ground operation in anticipation, the total death toll now nears 2,500. As airstrikes continue in the Gaza Strip, the IDF issued a sobering warning today to expect even more intense fighting in the coming weeks. This is 650,000 in Gaza now face uh, water shortages, according to the United Nations. Meanwhile, in Israel, families of the estimated 150 hostages taken in this weekend's atrocities are desperate for hopeful news amidst threats that these hostages could be executed. The Biden administration says of the 17 known Americans uh, accounted for, unaccounted for in Israel at this time, those known to be hostages are, is a small number, likely less than a handful, but still a handful nonetheless. Kirby also confirmed U.S. intelligence and military forces looking at alternatives to evacuate Americans. American citizens in Israel, those who are currently able to leave via commercial flight. Now, a months-long ground operation. Does this mean a new official occupation in Gaza? That's what it looks like. Yes. Um, as we've discussed, uh, Israel's choice to cut off water, power, and food to Gaza does constitute a war crime. But even more—I don't say even more—galling. Additionally, additionally. There is reporting, last night it was nine, now it's up to 11 U.N. staff members have been killed uh, by IDF, including in, in, in addition to 30 students at U.N. schools. Who's reporting that? Uh, the Times of Israel, uh, additionally, the initial news uh, came out in, uh, I think it was The Guardian, yeah. uh, but I, I have to look that back up again. So uh, that's incredible that we're in a place where the threats that were lobbed by everyone from members of our own State Department to members of Israel's military to Max Miller, who's currently dealing with the um, discord around the House speakership battle, who have threatened to level Gaza into a parking lot uh, and who have um, stated very clearly that they think that the population of two million people, including children, should be reduced to a parking lot. Um, those kind of sentiments are being played out in a way that is showing a great deal of indifference to humanitarian workers, um, to 
American citizens and others, uh, potential allies who are caught up in this. The dead include five teachers, a gynecologist, an engineer, a counselor, and three support staff, uh, in addition to the pupils, the kids at this UN school. It, it really is, I think the question many people are asking is, how many innocent deaths does Israel get to claim in exchange for the innocent Israelis that were killed by Hamas? Um, what, what is the vengeance justification here for their uh, ongoing killing that is causing all of these civilians in, um, got in the Gaza Strip to be well I, well, I certainly hope no murdered. one is arguing that because innocent Israelis were massacred by Hamas last weekend, that it's okay to kill other <laughs> innocent civilians, right? The well, killing of innocent... Well, what do you think it means when <clears throat> Max Miller says we should flatten Gaza into a well, parking Max, lot? Why, why are we talking about what Max Miller thinks? Well, what does Who it cares? mean when the senior Israeli military official says that we're dealing with human animals and, and reflects that exact same sentiment? The Israeli forces are very unfortunately causing, killing innocent civilians in their effort to respond to Hamas. Now, I've criticized this effort. I think it is incumbent on them, and if they think through this, they should be worried about causing more of exactly what they caused in the first place, which is the, the growth of Hamas, which can be credibly tied now to uh, to efforts by Israeli's government to kind of pied piper them, to sort of delegitimize the Palestinian opposition by having the most extreme and most violent group become the one that speaks for them. That is that quite literally blowing up in their faces, given that given what Hamas has done, which is terrible and unconscionable. I mean, and and I. So I'm totally against much of the Israeli response. Obviously, Israel is going to have a counter-response that involves trying to root out Hamas. And I think it is important for them to be thoughtful in how they do that and not cause more suffering and more casualties. But, we know they, but the reality they is that they're they know going they won't, to go and they after don't Hamas feel after like this. that's the responsibility. I mean, something that we're hearing echoed, I just watched an exchange between uh, Dr. Cornell West and Alan Dershowitz on uh, Hannity. I suppose it was last night, and uh, Alan Dershowitz argued, as many defenders of um, IDF's killing of uh, civilians in Palestine have argued for a long time, that because Palestinians use children as human shields, any killing of civilians that are in Palestine is justified. I think officially— You said it was, it was justified? It, yeah. Yeah, Many justified. people, including Alan Dershowitz, in that specific example I just gave you. So that being the case, you know, you hear this as well. Well, it's so densely packed in, in Gaza, what can we do? If we want to root out Hamas, what can we do but starve the entire population? And now there's this discussion about a humanitarian corridor being open that will allow people, some people to leave. But there's two issues with that. One is that the humanitarian corridor would uh, maximally allow 2,000 people to leave a day out of a population of over 2 million. So what are you saying? That the remaining millions that are there are just going to have to be subject to apartment buildings being leveled, no food, where was already water, 90 percent of the population was already unable to access clean drinking water before this crisis erupted. What, what about the rest of them? And the other issue is that many people are reluctant to leave because they're not being guaranteed any right of return. And it feels like, and is starting to increasingly resemble, a method for ethnic cleansing, ultimately getting Palestinians out of the land and never allowing them to return. 
So th this is a, a great these are very bad. These are all very bad consequences for which Hamas deserves a lot of blame for causing to take place. Uh, these, these, the deaths of these innocent people are substantially on uh, our. This is Hamas's fault. Hamas launched a terrorist attack, indiscriminately killing Israeli s civilians, gunning down people in their homes and at bus stations. We've seen the footage of bodies of non-combatants everywhere. Um, the reality is there there is going to be a military response to to capture, kill, and neutralize the terrorist forces that did that. And I I would hope and pray that that response is as surgical and limited as possible not. to not involve not. civilian deaths. But um, Hamas probably wants it to be as bloody a reprisal as possible, because well, that's Israel, for Well, Israel, it seems their... to be acting in a way that suggests that it wants it to be as bloody a reprisal, reprisal as possible, because they are doing what is a violation of international law in enacting collective punishment on the entire 2.3 million population of the Gaza Strip. Right. Well, I have criticized that a lot, but I don't want to minimize the fact that we're in this situation because of the, uh, the, the galling, horrific acts of a terrorist group. So the real question the public has to answer is how many galling, horrific acts enacted on children, humanitarian aid workers, non-Palestinians non who are living on the Gaza Strip are justified, including the fact that they're being funded with okay, our tax but, dollars. Let's not draw some equivalence here, here, because the Israelis have not entered Gaza and started indiscriminately, purposefully targeting civilians the way Hamas did. Hamas out. killed innocent people on purpose, and that is a lot worse and, more, and worth calling out. Okay. So I'm asking the question now, how many people does Israel get to kill in Gaza indiscriminately, and how many do they get to starve in uh, kill by turning off the electricity and water so that medical personnel in Gaza cannot treat the victims of the airstrikes that have killed over a thousand people in the Gaza Strip, including a number of humanitarian aid wor workers and 30 children that attend the international, the UN school in the Gaza Strip. Yeah, I just don't want to overlook Hamas's ex extreme responsibility for this situation in our we, we both of us have continuously criticized and called out the Israeli response, and also I have called out, and you have as well, the U.S. The US.'s support for the Israeli response, which I which I don't endorse and do not believe we should fund whatsoever. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't point the blame squarely where it belongs on in the acts of a terrorist organization. Yeah, I think a lot of blame also lies on Israel's choice to continually occupy 2.3 million people and also the ongoing reporting of how Bibi Netanyahu, as you mentioned earlier, uh, boosted uh, Hamas as a um, less sympathetic, shall we say, uh, representative uh, or political body in the Gaza Strip that could be used to justify the exact kinds of uh, horrific attacks right. that are being um, uh, siege, siege is the word that was used. Yeah, but there's in fact no justification in, for the terrorist acts that occurred, uh, contrary to what so many American university students and Black Lives Matter groups seem to think. But um, there is no justification. All right. So the question that people have to ask is, um, I'm sorry, I'm a little. I just read that news before we came on. I'm a little rattled by it, having gone to an international school myself and having a parent who's a uh, who was a humanitarian aid worker for many years. That they can act with impunity, and our, you know, our ally can act with impunity in that way, 
and kill citizens of the world in that way. And for that, not to, we not, we're not even able to take a really a beat to acknowledge the horror without immediately jumping in and saying, well, somebody else did something bad. You know, Hamas is a terrorist group that should be held accountable. But I'm not hearing much of any conversation about our ally Israel and the money that we are putting through going uh, sending to Israel being held accountable for killing children, Palestinian children first and foremost, but now also international aid workers and their children in their homes. But you know, we'll continue to see that uh, cover that story as it develops. Stick around, we'll have more rising for you right after this. Majority Whip Steve Scalise will almost certainly face obstacles in cementing his position as House Speaker. Hardline Congresswomen Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene are among nearly, nearly half a dozen members in the Republican conference who did not commit their votes to Scalise. The two have instead thrown their support behind Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan. South Carolina Congresswoman Nancy Mays also refused to vote for Scalise. She is explaining her position to CNN's Jay Tapper yesterday evening. Let's watch. I plan on voting for Jim Jordan on the floor. Um, I've been very vocal about this over the last couple of days. I personally cannot in good conscience vote for someone who attended a white supremacist conference and compared himself to David Duke. I would be doing an enormous disservice to the voters that I represent in South Carolina if I were to do that. Mace alleged Democrats in the House would join in voting for Jordan over Scalise, saying they trust him. While different factions of the GOP duke it out over the next leader of the lower chamber, work in the House has come to a grinding halt. But as columnist Matt Iglesias points out in his new op-ed in Bloomberg News, Democrats could end the impasse. He took to X, writing, quote, Dems help elect a Republican speaker in exchange for some ability to force floor votes on bills with bipartisan support, even if GOP rules committee members don't like it. This idea put forward by minority leader Hakeem Jeffries, who the Democrats have nominated for speaker. Um, which is a actually a great would be a great deal to have in place. Um, I don't think those of us whose views fall outside the narrow confines of the leaders of both parties, which is not just libertarians in the left, but actually tons of Americans, yeah. would certainly prefer an arrangement where you would actually have things being voted on. But right now, the party leaders can prevent it. I'm not saying it would even pass, but there won't even be votes on things that they don't want to be voted on. So a different arrangement would be uh, would be terrific. Un now, unlike, now, they can't work together, so it's unlikely to be in place, but it's a shame. Yeah, well, look, since Scalise emerged as a front-runner, the Democrats have taken to getting into who Scalise is and have res resurfaced some of his comments about being, quote, David Duke without the baggage um, and the fact that he gave a speech to a white supremacist group founded by the former KKK Grand Wizard back in 2002. Uh, and I don't know if that's the reason or whether just the lack of uh, inability to come to consensus is the reason, but it does seem like he's on his way out. Newsmax reported just earlier this morning that Scalise is apparently planning to jump out and other people are trying to get in. So it's unclear who the new uh, chosen one will be. This idea of Democrats crossing the aisle for some kind of consensus candidate is an interesting one because fundamentally... Republicans are going to continue to have problems within their caucus because the differences of opinion around issues like Ukraine aren't going anywhere. And as long as they maintain the ability to do a motion to vacate, even if they raise the threshold somewhat, if 
four, five, six Republicans can still at the end of the day pull the trigger. They can they can decide on some interim person without it being that much of a commitment on the on the part of the Freedom Caucus rebels. Meanwhile, Democrats stand to gain a lot by saying, okay, you guys are all kind of terrible to us, obviously. I don't really see what Democrats, what difference it makes to Democrats, whether it's Scalise or Jordan or McCarthy or any of them. None Frankly, of them I'm not sure what difference ideals. it makes to something Republicans, what difference Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise are. Their policies are very, sure. very much the same. Sure. So they don't, I know they don't see it that way, but. So there's a lot of gains to trade here for Democrats, which is why it's fascinating that why you do hear some of this from Hakeem Jeffries, you're not hearing anything about progressives wielding their power as a bloc and saying, we're going to cross the line, not for what Hakeem Jeffries wants to, us to do, but for what we want that is actually populist and aligned with the interests of the American people, like more specifically. So one interesting thing that's emerging is because of the Israel-Palestine conflict, there's new scrutiny on uh, Hakeem Jeffries' role uh, as someone who is a big supporter, a taker of APAC money, big supporter of Israel, says Israel is New York's uh, sixth borough. He has um, uh, been a member, a uh, participant in super PACs that raise funds to uh, challenge Democrats who are supportive of Palestinian rights. And now all of this is coming to a head, and it's drawing—it's it's coming it's um, uh, drawing into focus, bringing into focus how unsteady the alliance between progressives and the establishment within their own party is. Apparently, I don't know if we covered it on the, on the show yet, but you know, uh, Gottheimer made this remark. Uh, there was this um, caucus meeting in which uh, uh, he basically said that um, uh, the couple of uh, what uh, the Muslim congresswomen who have been supportive of Palestinian uh, rights should are guilty. He said, um, uh, they, you know, they're they're guilty of. I don't know, mm -hmm. supporting Hamas or being terrorists and things like that. And he has been a, a close ally, ally in these APAC, uh, DMFI rather, uh, super PACs with Hakeem Jeffries. So I think there are some really interesting dynamics going on here. Kayla Lacey at The Intercept did an interesting thread on how this is uh, unraveling. But I do wonder if this could be an opportunity for the progressives who have been so targeted by members of their own party over their support of Palestine to say this is an, an area where you have to lay off and stop challenging us and stop putting all the super PAC money trying to get us out of our seats, especially when, before we got into office, you crowed and crowed about how it was the duty of the Democratic Party to protect incumbents. Now that we're the incumbents, the rules seem to have changed. Is this an opportunity for them to try to use leverage and protect themselves as they're increasingly vulnerable in the context of this new violence in Israel-Palestine? Well, I know you, uh, you and many other progressives, people on the left, are a little, even as the mainstream consensus that it's embarrassing what the Republicans are doing, you're a little envious of the fact that there's Absolutely. actually dissension going on, which is what is supposed to happen in the House. But party leaders have had such a stranglehold on power. Again, they don't even vote on things. They don't vote on anything, ever, ever. Yeah. Because yeah. they're, they're, the, the party leaders are, are able to block that happening. It would be great if this could return to actually being a deliberative body where votes are taken on policies instead of just this, you know, uni there's either unanimity of thought, so the votes are performative, or there, or where there's actual differences, the votes aren't going to take yeah. place because the leadership has control over it. Um, anyway, this dynamic is is very interesting. G you know, so Jim Jordan is has said, maybe this isn't true, but he said he's okay with Steve Scalise mm. becoming the uh, the speaker, that he would actually even nominate Steve Scalise to be the speaker. But those, the dissenters, Nancy Mace, Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Ken Buck, won't 
even though it was Ken Buck's an exception because he doesn't support Jordan or uh, Scalise, but the others supported Jordan over Scalise. But even though Jordan is now willing, like, he's going to bend the knee to Scalise, but his own bannerman won't make that, that yeah. tactic to I use I do wonder a, if it's kind of like a placeholder person. Um, that what you know, continuing to support Jim Jordan when Jim Jordan isn't supporting himself. Uh, we <laughs> they saw believe this a in bit him, in even though he doesn't believe in himself. <laughs> sure, maybe it is that. I should clarify um, what the Gottheimer remarks were because we we didn't actually cover it. So in, in yesterday's caucus meeting, there was a conversation happening about wanting both Jewish and Muslim constituents to feel comfortable attending events to support each other, um, and that they had heard that Muslim clerics did not attend a vigil on Tuesday night in their district. And then from the back of the room, Gottheimer said that. Uh, it's because they're guilty, um, that the Muslim clerics and constituents are guilty and perhaps shouldn't feel entitled to come and join in the, the morning events. I've seen, by the way, uh, um, one particular Jewish group in D.C. has been holding— well, no, I think it's not, they're not in D.C. They made uh, vigil events all over the place. But there was one in my neighborhood uh, recently uh, that I heard it reported on on the radio last night. And it sounded like a really beautiful thing. And I do hope there were there were— People there from all kinds of backgrounds just really expressing solidarity uh, on the violence ending and showing real mutual respect for the lives of all that have been lost, uh, regardless of religious background or national affiliation. And I do hope that that comes through uh, as so much of the rhetoric that we're hearing from Congress is divisive and making these kind of sweeping judgments of, you know, people who are Americans and constituents in these, in these districts. So we'll keep watching. We'll keep watching the House and give you updates when they reveal themselves. Stick around. We're rising right after this. Back the hell off. That's the message that investigative reporter Michael Schellenberger posted on X in a direct response to Terry Breton, an EU official, after he demanded that Meta, Facebook's parent company, and X, formerly known as Twitter, help stop the spread of disinformation in the wake of the war between Israel and Hamas. Now, in a letter to Meta's Mark Zuckerberg, Terry imposed a 24-hour deadline to submit a plan detailing how the platform will respond and take down disinformation on the platform. In his post, Schellenberger said, quote, Hi, sorry, but who exactly do you think you are to demand censorship of speech? In America, we don't even let our own politicians censor speech, much less foreign ones. Here to discuss how governments are trying to use the Israel-Hamas war to expand censorship is Michael Schellenberger himself. Welcome back, Michael. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm so glad you're on the case here. Unpack for us what the implications are of this letter. Well, it could be very serious. I mean, this is uh, it's a very dynamic moment, I should say, and things keep changing. You know, the CEO of X, formerly Twitter, sent a response to the um, to Thierry Breton, the chief censor of the European Union, uh, early this morning at 12.40 a.m., uh, saying that they were dealing with this, they had been taking down some accounts. She also pointed to the fact that they have community notes which is this crowdsourced fact-checking that X has been employing, which I think has been very impressive. I was very skeptical of that at first. But, you know, I noted in what I wrote, I mean, I had, before I had seen the Breton letter to X, I had seen the video game videos, which is by this point very realistic for people that don't play video games. It's very amazing to see people shooting bazookas at taking down helicopters. I had seen it and already been flagged by community notes as video game video. So it was already corrected. So it's not misinformation anymore when it's being corrected and saying this is from a video game. He mentions in his letter 
what are you doing about this video game footage? Well, if he actually had been online and I, I, I found myself a little, you know, it's like you get a little annoyed. I don't think he is actually somebody that goes online very much. He's a European bureaucrat. I suspect he was not himself doing the investigation here. But if you would go online, you see it's an extremely dynamic moment. We're in the midst of a, of a fog of war type situation. There's, as everybody knows, there's been this huge question around whether or not there were babies beheaded. President Biden yesterday said that, that he had seen photos. He, that turned out later that was not the case. He had not seen photos. Just an hour ago, we saw a CNN report saying the Israeli government said they did not know if there had been babies beheaded. This is the kind of thing where we don't want bureaucrats in Europe to decide what information we're allowed to receive and when to get it. There's an open exploration. There's information coming in that we should we do not need a little central committee of censors deciding for us what information we should be able to get. Look, it's a completely politicized process. It's a completely subjective process. So so this idea that this is going to be somehow better worked out by a little committee in Paris or in Brussels rather than thousands of content creators and investigative reporters and people arguing on both sides is absurd. So for me, the entire situation points to the incredible gift that is the First Amendment, that is free speech. So yeah, back off, Europe. Allow us to have our free speech. It's, you know, 250 years of this amazing experiment we've done in the United States. If anything, we think France and Europe should follow our example. We don't want to follow theirs. Yes, and I think it's also worth pointing out that it's certainly the case, it's always been the case in a dynamic situation, to use your phrasing, in the wake of a terrorist attack or a violent episode or a you know, bombing or a shooting. We see video footage, we see photos, we see claims, and some of them are true and some of them are false. That's not yeah. new. That's, that's always been the case. It's also true that there are errors in the, in the mainstream media professional journalists make, reporters make, in the course of the work they're doing. That's that's been the case with some of the the, the claim that that Biden made that it can't actually be sourced. You know, various reporters have made claims either way in either direction. So I find it so it it, it's, it seems hypocritical to me because the focus is always on the social media company from you know EU regulator type people. They're saying, oh, there's there's these these you know, possibly false or untrue or unsourced claims floating on social media. But like the traditional media also has, gets things wrong. And, and, and but the attention is, is solely on, you know, how the platforms can do more when, as you totally rightly pointing out, and Community Notes is, is, a, is I think it's been a fantastic success so far. L like you, I was initially um, skeptical, but it, it seems to, you know, letting people all weigh in and kind of have a, have a democratic, almost Wikipedia style process at arriving at truth has, has worked, not perfectly, but is working a lot better than basically any other fact-checking system the social media sites have come up with yet. Certainly better than, uh, than doing it via, uh, via you know, European Union um, committee. But it's just so selective that they come after social media companies when you, you can find errors in the traditional media. Well, yeah, and also you see heads of state spreading myths yeah. and disinformation, including, remember, the French government, when they had their riots, they put out something saying, oh, it was misinformation that they were considering shutting, shutting off social media sites entirely. Turned out later, they were considering it. So that was actually deliberate misinformation or disinformation. You know, I was fall I'm following, as many people are, we're following a bunch of new, interesting voices from Israel I'd been following somebody who I thought was a very good, um, someone had a lot of good sources inside, appeared the um, Israeli military. And then um, when it came to the, they, uh, this person, I won't say who it is, but when it came to the babies, they said anybody who denies that that occurred is like a Holocaust denier. <laughs> and they said, we know we have proof 
because Biden just said it. And I remember at the time being mm-hmm. like, that doesn't seem like, just because the president said it doesn't mean it's true. I'm experiencing this on a separate issue I work on around the wind industry and the whales where people say, no, you're wrong because the government said like six months ago or a year ago that it wasn't because the wind industry, our data is more recent. So it's like, allow yeah. the debate to occur. You know, there's, I, I, it's funny because one of the greatest French philosophers, I mean, if you look at French thinkers, they are absolutely obsessed with the fact that truth is much more subtle and changing over time. One of the greatest French philosophers of the last hundred years, Jacques Derrida, came to fame by saying you never can fully establish what the truth is or the meaning of something is because things keep changing. And so the meaning, for example, of Karl Marx, you don't know for another hundred years. So this idea that somehow like the truth is like an object in the world where you can, it's very simple. It's a juvenile childlike view of the truth. And I think that to your point, it's this problem, this idea that there's somehow official sources or mainstream sources that somehow they're the repositories of truth. It's just a juvenile view. It's we, we know that the truth and a language and meaning simply doesn't work that way. And that more views, more perspectives, more speech is a better way to find out what the truth is than having some small group of people decide. Yeah, I really want to get into specifically how these anti-speech interests seem to be aligning with some of the uh, pro-Zionist forces who are really encouraging a certain kind of response to Gaza right now. This is a very sort of one-sided in this context uh, uh, direction of the speech suppression that's happening. We have a British Home Secretary Suella Braverman telling the senior police in the UK that waving a Palestinian flag or singing a chant advocating freedom for Palestinians in the region may be a criminal offense. And then subsequently, after she said that, there was video footage that was posted of uh, uh, police policemen in St. Peter's Square in Manchester arresting pro-Palestinian protesters. You had footage of um, Israeli protesters who were protesting the bombing of the two million civilian population in Gaza, 50 percent children being arrested by police in Israel. And you have seen a kind of not direct speech suppression, but a number of people from a sports writer that covers Philly sports teams to a, um, a, a Harvard student losing their job, their prospective job for after graduation, and even a truck with the names of the individuals who were members of the clubs that issued a number of letters in support of Palestine driving around Harvard's campus with the effort of, I guess, publicly shaming them. Are you surprised at all by the kind of overwhelming uh, interest in quelling and suppress- suppressing opinions, even opinions that you might disagree with, and at the kind of institutions and the backing that these uh, efforts to suppress that speech have gotten from some members of the conservative community that historically have been very skeptical and critical of similar efforts to suppress speech on the right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Surprised and disappointed. I mean, I think that, you know, it's been a very emotional three days. You may have seen there's this amazing Jon Stewart clip that's been going viral. I think Elon retweeted it from nine years ago where he went, he was starting to offer a criticism of Israel and he was just being shouted down. That was sort of the whole gag. And so, you know, I think emotions were very hot over the last uh, 72 hours or more. 
Uh, I do think it's calming down a bit. But yeah, I think it's fair to say we've all seen people that have been some of our most magnificent critics of cancel culture and of censorship engaging in kind of behaviors and advocacy for those similar types of cancellations or kinds of censorship. You mentioned the case of Britain. I mean, the case in Harvard is really gross to go around and and to do that kind of thing. Look, we should we should argue. You know, we should tell people that they're wrong. We should um, disagree passionately. Um, allow those debates to occur. I mean, it's a very dark moment right now. I hate to be such a Pollyanna in some ways, but I do hope that it is a moment where people can start to see the real dark side. And the fact that, look, I mean, it's just all this ancient wisdom we have. I mean, if you go through the various wisdom traditions, you know, you sort of see in the Bible stories of, hey, you know, you can recognize uh, the blindness in somebody else, the log in your eye, and you can't see the speck in your own. Uh, you know, this idea from Nietzsche, which is when you do battle with monsters, take care you don't become a monster. I, I think that people just, you can see the emotion has led people uh, to engage in ways that I think are not the, the best of them. And, you know, it's funny because right before the attacks, uh, we wrote a piece about how I was going around Ireland interviewing people about a hate speech law that would have involved pretty significant censorship, including sending the police into people's homes. And I came out of it being like, you know, when you actually slow people down, this is the kind of classic Daniel Kahneman idea that there's sort of fast thinking and slow thinking, fast thinking, very knee jerk, it's very emotional. But when you actually slow people down, just doing that has an effect on people, they become calmer, they think through the implications, they think through about how these proposals for censorship might be abused, the downsides of censorship culture, that we're all wrong, you know, the line of good, the line between good and evil runs through all men. Uh, I think it's a moment that calls out for some great humility and for, to you know, for tolerance and for just some of these really simple values that we tend to forget in the heat of the moment. So I absolutely think you're right to point to it. And I would just say, you know, and we should be forgiving too. I, I, some of those behaviors that we saw over the last 72 hours, I hope they don't continue uh, as we go forward because this is a moment that really is crying out for a new peace movement. I mean, we've got a piece coming out today about how the left used to be really where you would look for the peace movement, even when sometimes it was cringe or wrong or whatever, um, or sometimes too simplistic. Um, it's sad to see so many folks, um, well, both on the right and the left, I think not uh, behaving as their highest selves right now. Drawing on lessons from the Bible and from French philosophy, what, what are you not an expert in, uh, Mr. Schellenberger? <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. President Joe Biden says that he saw pictures of beheaded Israeli babies, a claim that is still in serious dispute. Let's watch what he said. I never really thought that I would see and have confirmed pictures of terrorists beheading children. I never thought I'd ever. Anyway, I. Uh, but there are countries in the region that are trying to be of some help including Arab nations, trying to be of some help. So, uh, anyway. 
Now, according to the Washington Post, a White House spokesperson later clarified that United States officials and the president have not seen pictures or videos of beheaded children or seen reports independently confirming that. The spokesperson said that Biden based his comments about these alleged atrocities on claims from Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu's spokesperson and also media reports from within Israel. The Israel Defense Forces declined to comment to the Washington Post on the state of the victims' bodies. And just this morning, CNN reported that Israel cannot confirm the specific claim that babies were beheaded in a Hamas attack, according to officials contradicting previous public statements. Meanwhile, Israel, uh, Israeli photojournalist Oren Ziv, who covers conflicts in the region and was allegedly part of the media tour, commented on X, I'm getting a lot of questions about the reports of Hamas beheaded babies that were published after the media tour in the village. During the tour, we didn't see any evidence of this, and the army spokesperson or commander's also didn't mention any such incidents. Ziv goes on to say, during the tour, journalists were allowed to speak to the hundreds of soldiers on site without the supervision of the Army spokesperson team. I-24 reporter said she heard it, quote, from soldiers. Soldiers I spoke with in Kafar Azah yesterday didn't mention beheaded babies. The Army spokesperson stated, we cannot confirm at this point. We are aware of the heinous acts Hamas is capable of. Ziv also says, quote, this doesn't mean that war crimes were not committed. The scene in Kafaraza was horrific, with dozens of bodies of Israelis murdered in their homes. Sadly, Israel will now use these false claims to escalate the bombing of Gaza and to justify its war crimes there. That's according to that source. Now, as we covered yesterday, CBS News reported that an IDF spokesperson told them that more than one Israeli soldiers have seen young children that were decapitated, and in addition, the head of a civilian emergency response organization told CBS News that he had seen these uh, atrocities. Hamas has denied the allegations that the organization committed crimes against uh, women and children. Hamas has rejected allegations that it committed uh, crimes against women and children. These are, this is the quote, some Western media outlets continue to spread Zionist slander and lies about our Palestinian people and their resistance which falsely and slanderously promoted allegations that members of the Palestinian resistance beheaded children and assaulted women without any evidence to support their lies and claims. Hamas strongly condemns the baseless allegations. So it looks like uh, Biden lied from the pulpit in front of the, all of the entire American people and repeated unconfirmed, what we, we knew when we reported all of yesterday, was that it was unconfirmed. The IDF repeatedly declined to confirm, which was, I think, a red flag in and of itself. Of course, we were all waiting to see what got reported out, because, of course, nobody would want to downplay or minimize such claims if they were to be true. But the fact that the IDF, who, for obvious reasons, has every interest in validating a horrific attack from Hamas against Israeli citizens as they are looking for international support, et cetera. The fact that they were unwilling to confirm the reports, I think, was a pretty significant red flag. And then the fact that there were, uh, uh, as, the, as the lie was spreading all across social media, being picked up, CNN said they confirmed it, CNN said they confirmed it midday yesterday, and that it made it all the way to the White House and out of Joe Biden's lips. And then that lie transformed it from just there were 40 beheaded babies to I saw personally evidence of four, 40 beheaded babies. People jumped 
all online saying, ah, I told you so. You guys were trying to deny the cruelty of Hamas. I told you so. Because the president said it, a president who is so known for being a serial fabulist that his moniker is literally Lion Biden. Yeah, uh, Biden clearly got this one um, wrong, this this uh, this rumor that has floated on social media and that several mainstream news organizations have grappled with um, is, is not, in fact, confirmed. Uh, you know, they said it, it's one of those, we talked to someone who talked to someone who saw it kind of thing. Um, you know, Biden has a long history of exaggerate. Yes, of, of exaggerations, outright lies. Uh, in fact, he he had to exit his first presidential campaign after plagiarizing a British politician's speech. Um, he's he's made um, misstatements about the circumstances of uh, of Bo Biden's death. He has him and other political figures, including Hillary Clinton and media figures, often have said things about how they were you know close to the danger when they visited combat zones. Remember the whole yep. the whole helicopter or plane or whatever it was coming under fire that uh, Hillary Clinton talked about. So uh, just because I, conservatives know this, just because Biden says it does not make it true, and his own uh, his own White House is not backing it up. Um, that's uh, with this with this story. It's not like like it doesn't need to be true in order for the attacks to be horrific. Of the violence not. is horrific. There are there are bodies lining the the streets. There are there are bullet ridden corpses. Um, women died. Children died. It was an unprovoked attack on innocent, defenseless civilians, many of whom have been taken captive and their lives are now being threatened. So it, it doesn't, this, this does not like need to be true in order for, for so this attack this to up? rise to the level why, of. What is the advantage? Because I have a theory of, of making up something like this. What is your theory? Well, I, I mean, I don't know who, I, I think. I, I don't know who initiated the rumor. It, we, we heard something about um, about injured children being moved from one location to another. I think report. that might be the, the genesis of it, if that is true. I don't know, but go ahead. And to be clear, this lie has been parroted everywhere. I referenced in a different segment that there was a debate between Cornell West and uh, Alan Dershowitz on Fox last night. One of the things that Dershowitz used to try to win the argument against Cornell West, who was arguing for the shared horror, the indiscriminate horror of dead children, whether they be Palestinian lives or precious Israeli lives, Dershowitz says, well, what about the 40 beheaded babies? And that, I think, is a clue to what that particular kind of a rumor does. If you have a tragic mass of death on both sides, including multitudes more Palestinians who have been killed over the last, last 10, 15 years than Israelis who have been killed. And children, Palestinian children, a much bigger, horrible, tragic, disgusting pile of Palestinian bodies, then you have to find a way to distinguish why those kind of raw numbers and why all of the children and the tragedy shouldn't be treated equally. And we see words like barbaric, barbarism. Because it was barbaric. Flown around, flung around. But the barbarism, the, the inhumanity of bombing children in Palestine is not describing those same words. What you need to do is find language that makes it feel like there's something different to the character of it when a Israeli child is killed versus when a Palestinian child is killed. When a Palestinian child is killed, and we heard this from Dershowitz and many other defenders of the indiscriminate killing of Palestinian children, well, it must be the case 
that uh, Hamas was using them as a human shield. It must be the case that a missile was located, a Hamas missile was located close to those children and it could not be helped. And on the other side, we're, we're being told that Palestinians are keeping Israeli children in cages and decapitating them by the dozens, neither which rumor turned out to be true. And yet in the middle of a tragedy that needed no embellishment to make the case for why Hamas's acts are horrible, and tragic, there is still this embellishment, and I believe it is rooted in a desire to strip humanity from the people of Palestine and justify doing what Max Miller and a number of other officials in the Israeli oh government God. have said, Max which Miller is to flatten— Max Miller is an obscure Republican official. It does not matter what he says. So every leftist—wait a minute, Robbie. Every leftist in America was asked to apologize for some random protest— They should apologize. They should apologize for their endorsement of terrorist attacks on innocent Israeli civilians, just as I am outraged by the retaliatory actions that are killing innocent Palestinian children everywhere. I care about both— of these things and have said I care about both of these things over and over again. It is you and the idiotic, leftist, terrorist sympathizing people who do not care about the dead Israelis. So they I, don't. So I'm a terrorist. And they've said it over and over again. Black Lives Matter has said it. The Harvard students have said it. The DSA in various locations have said it. The left endorses what Hamas did. They do. They endorse it. The Harvard newspaper said exactly what the editorial page of Israel's major newspaper said. I don't give a f Brianna. Okay, well, that's clear that that's your opinion, but the Israeli voices in Israel who are getting killed because their fascist right-wing government decides to keep two points. The Israelis are getting people. killed because a terrorist group targeted them. Israeli and they bear responsibility for what they did. Well, Robbie, if you think you know more than Israel Israelis in Israel, then you can feel free to have your position. But the position of Israelis who are the ones that are being victimized by the, this, this terrorism is that the fact of stripping the rights of 2.3 million people in an apartheid state on their border are conditions Justify terrorist attacks on civilians in those towns. Do you think that justifies terrorist attacks? No. Well, I don't either, so why do you keep saying Well, that? I don't think the occupation is justified either. So okay. why are you saying that so I do? So, Robbie, I'm not saying that you do, but I have yet to hear you offer a solution for why the people that have been kept in an open-air prison for 17 years and who are being indiscriminately bombed right now and their water shut off and their heat shut off and their food shut off and the access to medical supplies shut off and U.N. staff members being killed by Israeli rockets, what is the solution for that group of people, 2.3 million people, to get self-determination? Is the solution for a terrorist group Wait a minute, no. to attack? Answer the question. There what is their solution? I support a two-state solution. Because there was a and There have been decades of peaceful protests. In 2018, there was this march—I always get the name wrong, sorry—march of return, uh, uh, where thousands of Palestinians marched along the wall, peacefully protesting, and Israeli IDF soldiers sniped down and shot them in the feet and knees including children. So that they justifies— tried, Wait a minute. They tried BDS, and we were told our own government said that if you support the boycott, divest, and sanction movement, you are not allowed to get a federal contract in several states, usually southern conservative states, in the United States of America. So you're not and allowed DSA to do a, a boycott. And candidates whether they will make a pledge to never visit Israel. It's, 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 there's mutual boycotting going on. What are you talking about? That's fine if they want to say that. The point is— <laughs> Of course. No. The point is, you're allowed to boycott. The question is whether or not your political opinion should get you out of a job. I thought you were a libertarian. I thought you cared about that.
I'm going to read a statement from DSA San Francisco. Violent oppression inevitably produces resistance. Socialists support the Palestinian people's and all people's right to resist and fight for their own liber liberation. This weekend's events are no different. I'm sorry, is that supposed to be own? They literally just recited international law, which allows occupied people to resist. This is why I say you endorse the, or the left is endorsing the terrorist activities. Okay, you can say that all you want. but the, if, the you, if you think that resistance means a terrorist group is allowed to indiscriminately kill civilians, that is a no, monstrous point of view. Not that the, is the view of the DSA. And that's the view of Black Lives Matter. Every, it's not the view of Black Lives Matter. It was the view of Black Lives Matter Chicago. It's the view of someone who ran the Black Lives Matter Twitter page in Chicago. Right. And given that we just interviewed a libertarian, the head of the Libertarian Party, who just said that the Libertarian Party's rejection of RFK Jr. as a candidate was just a peccadillo by somebody that was running the Twitter account, and that she's very happy to that's, embrace RFK Jr. Complete, as a candidate. That's equivocating. I'm calling <laughs> I'm out organizations and the public statements they're putting out, which endorse terrorist activity, endorse violence, Frankly, endorse murder the, of innocents. The, the condemnable action yeah, is if the— If I was the left, I would want to separate myself from these organizations well, a little bit more. If you, if you are not so afraid of the words that are coming out of my mouth and would let me speak, Robbie, I would tell you. The condemnable action is the killing of civilians and innocents. The condemnable action is not resistance itself. That is something that is worth a distinction. And if you create conditions, every defender of Israel right now is saying, well, Killing Palestinian kids is collateral damage. That's what that's what it means for Israel to defend itself. That it's going to kill some Palestinian kids and innocents. And oh, I have well. criticized that every time it has appeared okay. has come across but our screen. But what the United States of America did was to stand at a podium and say, without any caveats, Israel has a right to do that to defend itself, even if it means killing those innocent women and children. And what people are responding to is the inconsistency with which the lives lost that are innocents are treated. And yes, it matters infinitely more that a sitting Congress member, and by the way, also Lindsey Graham, it wasn't just Max Miller, it was any number of Republican, Republican Congress members. Lindsey Graham also echoed the sentiment that we should level Gaza. He wants to go to nuclear war with Iran. That's the situation we're in. And so you're sitting here criticizing whoever runs the Black Lives Matter Chicago Twitter page. And I'm criticizing members of Congress who are openly I'm criticizing members of Congress too. We're, we're who are openly contemplating genocide against a population of 2.3 million people, half of which are children. I'm, I have criticized that over and over again. I will continue to do so. Lindsey Graham does not represent my views. I, I don't share any views with Lindsey Graham. I, his foreign policy is everything I think the Republican Party should pivot away from, and the Democratic Party, frankly, which is keep, more, more or bloodthirsty that, than the Republicans you keep on this. You saying that you criticize this stuff, Robbie, but. At, I, 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 don't, I do criticize. I don't, I don't hear a lot of criticism from you of the leftist groups endorsing terrorist attacks. I don't think the leftist group should endorse terrorist attacks. Well, I, they are endorsing Wait a minute. Them. Well, okay. And I don't agree with that. But what I fundamentally do agree with is that they endorse the right to resist. And you keep sitting here saying, I support. I, what I does don't, that mean? I support the occupation. The same way that... If Israel has a right to defend itself, Palestinians also have the right to resist under international law. You cannot, you are not allowed to keep people in an apartheid state in an occupied condition. You are not allowed to shoot randomly into people's cars because you don't like the political situation. You're not allowed to bomb humanitarian aid workers and Palestinian children. I agree, children. you shouldn't do that. Okay, so why is it that it only comes out they're not allowed? Israel has the right to resist and it is violating international law. 
That's the subject of the conversation always. Palestinians have the right not to exist. resist. And has violated Well, talk to Bibi Netanyahu about it, because it's him and Again, his right You're, you're acting government. like I haven't criticized him all so why are, why three are you days. This, why is it every time there's an, an effort to get to the root cause here? Who caused Hamas? Bibi Netanyahu. Who's killing these children? Who's keeping this occupation Who is endorsing going? what Hamas is doing? The American left. That's who. That's insane, Rob. Well, it's true. I, it is insane, but it's true. <laughs> that is so I can insane. see their statements. Okay. Everyone minute, knows Robbie, it and everyone Robbie, understands the it. The American left disappears and suddenly Israel is a uh, multiracial, multireligious, halcyon fantasy land where Jews and, Isra uh, and, and Palestinians are walking arm in arm down the Gaza Strip. The American left is humiliating <laughs> itself on this issue. It's so apparent to everyone. You want that to be true so hard. But what the reality is, is that finally, the, the veil where everyone feels appalled to say the simple words, Palestine is an apartheid state. Israel is uh, oppressing an occupied people. 2.3 million people, half of which are children, are being systematically starved and denied medical attention and denied clean water and, and a violent violation resistance of, against and, and innocent law. people is what the correct response. incredible freedom to finally be able to say those things. And in response, because, of, because Israel understands the incredible power of shifting uh, its greatest allies in the, the public opinion away from unquestioning support, it is going Nothing is sending people, people more supportive of Israel than what the left way. is doing right now. People more are, supportive of military action, which is what Hamas wants. People are going out of their way to lie. And spread the, from the podium of the United States of America, the president is so—they're so threatened by people being able to just speak to the obvious horror that the Palestinians have been living under for years that they're now willing to lie and fabricate stories about Israeli kids in cages and what seems to be—and we'll see if any more reporting vets this out—a lie about 40 beheaded. How low and craven and gross do you have to be to make up a How lie? How craven do you have to be to say they had it? Coming? Yeah. Which is what these people are saying. You can keep putting words they in people's mouth, but nobody believes that, Robbie. Well, you, you can, can see just if sit I read and, the exact tell statement. Your own tale. The <laughs> right to resist and fight for their own liberation. This weekend's events are no different. Yes. That is an endorsement every, under the banner of liberation every, under the of the attacks that Hamas took this weekend. Your, your quibble was with international law and the fact that you seem to think that people should be living in prison conditions for the rest of their lives without ever doing I don't anything. think violence against civilians will help to ameliorate the neither appalling conditions of the Palestinians. Neither do nor I. Nor do most of the Palestinians, I would yeah, presume. Yeah, neither do I. And that's the, if you refuse yeah. to acknowledge... Hamas thinks that and the DSA thinks that. If you refuse so, to acknowledge the difference between resistance and attacks on civilians. That's interesting. I'm I mean, not the one who doesn't, who fails to make that distinction. The DSA, the left, is the one failing to make I, that distinction. I just made that distinction. You might not have heard it over the bluster, but I made that distinction. And the fundamental issue is that, of course, Palestine has the right to resist. And people have to work through what that looks like. It includes violent resistance. International law allows violent resistance. I don't think violent now, resistance will help liberate golly, Palestine. It's a bad idea, and they shouldn't golly, do it. Robbie, like, so. so much of what you want to hear is always in the sense second half of my statement, All but right. you cut well, it off before I can say it. I, your statements go on like, it a long way sometimes. Okay, well, I'm sorry that I'm trying to inject a nuance in a situation where you want to just sit here and, and echo what the mainstream media has to say about how terrorism is wrong. We all agree terrorism is wrong, <laughs> and killing killing civilians is wrong. I happen I, to want to— I, I no, apologize no, for echoing the mainstream consensus that terrorism is bad. No. The, I'm sure our, our viewers will be 
yeah, appalled by it's, that statement. No, it's very brave and big of you to do that. The courageous thing to do right now is to call out you do our in fact state, make it seem difficult. Our, our state-funded abuses of the Palestinian people. And while you say, I agree with that, every time I bring it up, you never bring it up. I bring it up and you say, oh yeah, I agree. But that doesn't sound like advocacy to me. I, I, that's not fair whatsoever. I absolutely advocate uh, non, again, it's non-intervention and peace on both fronts, on all fronts, as our Libertarian Party guest was saying. That's why I'm a member of that party. Doesn't matter what you, what your personal views are of it. We should not have violence between countries. We should not endorse and fund it. We're united on that. And no, no one should, in, should, in, should enact violence against someone else, and then you shouldn't engage in retaliatory violence against other people for the violence that was perpetrated against you. That, I don't know why that's controversial. It's not controversial. What's controversial is why nobody wants to talk about how, what 2.3 million people sitting in open-air prison for 17 years are supposed to do about that situation. All right. More rising right no after No solutions? This. No? No thoughts? What? What, what, what do you mean? I'm just asking. I'm not an expert in the region. I support what uh, the, the, uh, uh, two-state solution. You said a two-state solution isn't what they no, actually want. It's not. Whatever it's not equal because participation. Of the Israeli regime of settler colonialism and expanding the the settlements. There's like a cheesecloth network of uh, what Palestine is even left, and it's not sustainable. It's not. There's no. There's no state. We can have to, on, to draw a line around. About, we can have on whatever guest you want, who is an expert on what would be best for the Palestinian people, or is in touch with what the desire of the Palestinian people no. is for a for this a is, for land and silly. equal political treatment. No, and I will. I will likely I, I endorse whatever that. I can tell that. you. The fundamental issue is that Israel has said it has, as a matter of state policy, needing to do population control because they recognize that if they want to maintain an Israeli state with a two-tiered hierarchical system of representation within their state where your rights accrue with, along with your religious identity, that you cannot allow there to be a large population of Arabs and Muslims within your own country. So what which is means your they have to do legitimate, they have to do literal population control, which is why they have 2.3 million Arabs locked up in an open air prison. To have any kind of democracy, okay, You're describing say, the problem to me, and I endorse the problem. What are you saying is the solution? Well, I'm going to describe the problem because the problem never gets described. Well, you just you just attacked me for not being able to articulate a solution. I, I, well, you know, I, if I got to do it on your timeline, Robbie, do you want to also give me the words that you want me to say, or do you want me to make the case? The fundamental problem is that Israel, and as it's currently um, self-defined, will not allow the kinds of democracy and freedom of movement in the terms that Palestinians want because they don't want it to ever be the case that they are outnumbered demographically and an actual democracy within Israel. So the kind of solutions that would uh, allow like a one-state solution are going to be rejected by Israel, who wants to maintain a status as a, as a Jewish state. That is the fundamental crux of the issue. And so few of our conversations get to what it means to have a Jewish state, what it means to have a belief that you cannot be safe but for having a demographically rigged situation like that. And I understand, the obviously, the historical conditions that make people feel that way. But I do think that what the, like, last weekend's—and there was a great article in the New York, in New York, in New York Magazine about this. No, in The New Yorker about this, that made the case that the violence and the killing of civilians was horrible last weekend. But what it, I think the reality that it shifted for many Israelis who are now arguing for real peace and some real changes to what's going on in Gaza is that they thought 
there was this belief that it was sustainable, that you could kind of have a peaceful, happy Israel and shuttle people away, and that was sustainable. And now that people realize that people can break out of the prison with bulldozers and the like, and that they are, in fact, safe, and that they are able to be victimized in the way that people were victimized over the weekend, that they're being forced to the table into a real compromise that doesn't re result in 2.3 million people being kept in an open-air prison for the rest of their lives. But you're just—look, I, I, I don't disagree with anything you're saying, I, but I, I'm not, I don't know— I'm being like attacked for not having a solution to the problem. What is this? What is the solution? I, I'm not to the problem? attacking you for not having a solution. The problem is having a solution is very difficult, which is why I don't act. I don't come to the situation that the Palestinians are in with the hubris of wagging my finger and saying, "Oh no, 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 no! You can't do anything. Just sit quiet and don't act." Fundamentally, well, that, is, that is a fundamental. Difference occupied of people have there, the right. I have no to trouble wagging my finger at violence. Um, especially indiscriminate right. civilian targeting violence. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I said this before. Violence is not a violation of international law. Resistance is not a violation of international law. Many of people, Ukraine is allowed you to fight like back. Hamas has a plan America to overthrow the Israeli to state and declare independence. This was this was just a terrorist that's, attack. Well, that's not true. That's not their stated goal. No, of course it's not. Yeah, I don't. I don't think violence, even even if we could somehow structure it to fit under you keep citing international law, is going to lead to the liberation of the Palestinian people. All right. So then, every Ukrainian is doing a violence by shooting back at the Russians that invaded their country. Americans have I doing endorsed or co-signed the 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 Ukrainian. Uh, Russian war? No, I have urged them to no, Robbie, come to the table and have a diplomatic negotiation for the survival of both. Well, you know what I'm saying? Uh, saying that there should be peace is not the same thing as saying it is wrong for a, a Ukrainian to fight back. Of course Ukrainians can fight back. Of course that's their right. And of course it's uh, America's right to fight back against the, against the British and free themselves of colonial rule, and for the, the Indians to rise up and fight off colonial rule, and for the Haitians to rise up and fight off their slavers. Of course, I mean, should, in every situation— Should Mexico come start randomly killing we people in Arizona? We literally fought an, a Mexican-American war. Right. I know. That's what I'm referencing. And if, and if a bunch of people from Mexico came up north and started killing, like, zillions in Arizona, would you say, well— that's part the of their plan of the to recapture so, Arizona for I'm the so country of Mexico. I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm so glad you brought that up. Oh, I wish I could find the quote. People were passing around a quote of, I'm so bad at history, I'm sorry, whatever president it was at the time. Polk. Was it Polk? For the Mexican no, I think it was, it was. It was, it someone, was, it was someone subsequently, and they were doing a eulogy for a... Was it... They were doing a eulogy for Polk or a eulogy for someone else who was a journal in the war. And they said, I don't, I did Winfield basically, Scott. I don't want to eulogize them because it was an unjust war and they don't deserve the plot. I mean, it, it, it was an unjust war, but the, the, my point is that it, it, just because it was an un, it, it was in fact an unjust war, but it wouldn't me, make some violent plan to recapture the land today a good idea. <sighs> We've gotten really far afield on this one. Can we let it go there? Absolutely. More rising right after this. Young Turks host Cenk Uger will challenge President Joe Biden in the Democratic primary, announcing his bid on his own show Wednesday. Let's watch. I will be running for president of the United States of America. He is not going to win. I am running. Yes, I am a break glass in case of emergency candidate. It should not have been me. It should have been someone else. But unfortunately, it was not anyone else. And now there's only four months left. We must change course. 
He has at best a 10% chance of winning. Donald Trump is an actual fascist. Cenk urged Biden to drop out of the race, citing his cratering poll numbers, which he's not exactly off the mark on that one. A new Fox News poll shows President Biden's support is between 45 and 49 percent against each Republican running for the White House, including the narrow lead over Trump. But among the, ba among the battleground states, a new poll from Marketing Resource Group shows GOP frontrunner Donald Trump leading the president by seven points. That's in the battleground state of Michigan, which Biden narrowly won in 2020. In Pennsylvania, also a swing state, Trump is ahead of Biden by nine percentage points per a new Emerson College poll. Trump enjoys 45 percent uh, support there compared to Biden's 36 support, while 11 percent of voters reported that they plan to vote for someone besides the two frontrunners, and another 8 percent haven't decided yet. This chunk of voters may open up space for both candidates to win or lose votes. So these numbers are really bad for Biden. There's no way around it. These are key states, obviously, and we don't need to remind viewers of that, that Michigan, Pennsylvania, and other places will decide um, the election. Uh, in, in the previous election, Biden was never behind by this much against Trump in these states. Things could still change. Uh, if you're Biden, you have to hope that if and when Trump is actually the nominee, there will be some kind of um, erosion of support or, some, or, that, or that independent third number. A lot of that will defect to Joe Biden. That's what you kind of have to hope for. But I don't know if there's any reason to really think that. Um, it's, uh, it's bad numbers. Matt, but you're more familiar with Cenk Uger than I am, although we had him on uh, our show uh, a couple weeks, maybe last week, week before my vacation, um, to talk yeah. about his new book. And you two kind of got into it. So what's yeah, your Yeah, I think uh, Cenk's biggest hurdle is the fact that he uh, was not born in the United States. And so... Oh, that's a big one. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, the... Community notes under his announcement tweet reads, Cenk Uygur was born in Istanbul, Turkey, and is therefore ineligible to hold the office of president of the United States, which requires the candidate to be a natural-born citizen. Cenk claims that the Supreme Court would overturn this requirement in a, quote, slam-dunk victory. So he has his own legal theory as to why uh, he should be able to be <coughs> president. I, I frankly think it's a silly rule. I, I have no... I don't, I don't think that should be the bar to him or anybody else being president. I know that Republicans were dealing with this when Arnold Schwarzenegger was <laughs> contemplating a run at one point. But this is the reality. It is the rule. I mean, sure. C currently. But it, it's a pretty clear, uh, yeah. you know, you have to be this tall to get on the ride Correct. at the amusement park. Correct. So, uh, and, and I think it's a tall order to ask people to invest in your political campaign, including financially, when you can't really demonstrate that it's going anywhere. Would they be able to put him on the ballot? Because I, I'm reminded now of this um, controversy with Donald Trump. Some legal scholars think because of his involvement in January 6th, he has technically committed insurrection. And under the, the terms of one of the uh, Civil War era amendments, someone who does that, if referring, referring to former Confederate soldiers, is not eligible to be president. And the argument is, you can't even put Donald Trump's name on the ballot. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's something that is going to prompt you know, a lot of litigation, and there's going to be arguments for why that doesn't apply in this circumstance and so on. But the, the age and, and place of origin requirement is, is much more straightforward. So if the argument is you're not, you're not supposed to put Trump on the ballot for that reason, I, I would think it would be similarly that you can't put Cenk Uger's name on the yeah, ballot I, if he's just known to be not yeah. born in America. I think that's right. And look, a lot of candidates have gotten criticized for running campaigns that are 
an effort to sell their book. Marianne has been hit with those accusations. She's, of course, denied them and actually spoken to how much the spiritual community that buys her books really hates politics. <laughs> um, Andrew Yang has been accused of that. Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, with his woke book, has been accused of that. I mean, people who run for office do tend to write books about that experience. Well, and they get cable news gigs, and they get speaking gigs, and they get, I mean, the, sure. the, the Democratic in 20... 20 and 20 in 2020 for the Democrats in 2016 for the Republicans there were a million candidates uh, these the, the quote unquote legitimate candidates the political actors well they're raising their profiles and political fortunes and public writing books getting speaking gigs etc so I think it's not fair actually to accuse outsider type people like Andrew Yang or Cenk Uger or Marianne Williamson of yeah. like cashing in like the, the mainstream people are cashing in. Sure I do I do think that with Cenk the controversy is heightened by the fact that some years ago, I think like five years ago, he did a fundraising campaign for him to write a book, uh, and then the book never materialized. And so now mm. people have already associated him and the book with a certain kind of a grift. And now they're like, okay, here's the book, and now it's going to come with this political campaign. So he's going to have to deal with those implications. But I think his bigger, pro the bi biggest problem is he doesn't have name recognition out of a very small corner of the left. He might have the biggest YouTube show on the left, but what does that mean in the grand scheme of things? Uh, the idea that somebody could provide an alternative to Joe Biden and help beat Trump, and that person is him, and not like an establishment choice like Gavin Newsom is going to be a hard sell to most liberal, centrist Democrats uh, in the country. Um, I don't think he's wrong about raise, ringing the alarm on what's going on with Joe Biden. And I do think that, frankly, if it's looking like Joe Biden is going to lose anyway, I don't see why the Democratic Party wouldn't be interested in doing a kind of a Hail Mary campaign with someone who actually, I don't know, has the support of the people and doesn't have this horrible record that he has to defend. But I just don't think that Cenk is the guy. Cenk, what is his background? He did work uh, for the House, is that is that am I correct? At one point, or he didn't didn't he wasn't he involved in Justice Democrats or some he, group he like that coming together? He co-founded Justice Democrats. I mean, part of the issue is that he ran for Congress before. Um, I guess it was the twenty twenty mm -hmm. cycle. Was that uh, and. He got the endorsement of Bernie Sanders, but then there was like all of this controversy around it, and Bernie Sanders got hit because um, there were some, you know, accus accusations about past behavior. The TYT in its earlier days was a show that was much more um, aligned with like an E entertainment. That's not even the right example. Remember Perez Hilton? Sure. It, it was the early aughts, and it was not a good time for. Uh, how we treated women in this country. And uh, it was all, you remember, uh, there were all of these, oh, an, up, an But a great time for fashion. <laughs> and a great time for music. Sure. But it was all upskirt photos of like Paris Hilton or Lindsay Lohan, people who in retrospect were like 19 years old, getting out of cars. You you look at old, oh, yeah, cringy, really tonight, late night show interviews, and you have, you know, old, much older male hosts asking about the weight and the breast size and, you know, mm. creepy things about the women that are sitting in their chairs. And the Young Turks did engage in a lot of that, what we would now think very sexist behavior. Um, so it, it, it is difficult for, Cenk, I think anyone who wants to really just kill his campaign will just go pull up a bunch of clips of him saying and doing things that are have not aged well, shall we Has say. Has he picked Anna Kasparian to be his running mate? They can just have a, <laughs> the whole show be uh, Well, she's implicated in their... it, too, right? She was sitting right next to him and, like, playing along when they were doing that stuff. And I'm not saying I that... I thought she joined the show later, but I... No, well, she, she joined early enough to be doing that with him. So, 
I, I'm not saying that anybody should have to be characterized by their past behavior. There were a lot of people in the world who behaved that way back then who don't behave that way now. But I am saying that that is something that he's going to have to contend with if this became anything close to serious, which, again, I just don't see happening. He can't even put his name on the ballot. <laughs> that seems like a major hurdle, but good luck to him clearing that, and we'll have more rising right after this. Has Ukraine received its last check from the American taxpayers? Well, according to John Kirby, a national security spokesperson, the aid to Ukraine is not indefinite. Let's check out what he said the other day. On the Ukraine funding, we're, we're coming near to the end of the rope. I mean, today we announced $200 million, um, and, and we'll keep that aid going as long as we can, but it, it's, it's not going to be indefinite. So are we moving with a sense of alacrity? Absolutely. I couldn't give you a date certain on the calendar. Ooh, not indefinite is a real change of tone from the language that's been used up until this point about funding for Ukraine. I wonder if uh, that New York Times columnist, Tom Friedman, who we played a clip from him the other day, who said even to, to have any willingness to shut off Ukraine uh, funding is, is like evil. He used very stark language, is morally evil. Is he going to use that kind of uh, language for John Kirby? Conceding something that you and I and so many skeptics have been saying forever, which is that eventually we will stop sending money. That is, that is the reality. We're not going to fund this forever, even though the Biden administration has said that they would do that, that it would come to an end. So doesn't it behoove us to push for and work for, uh, for a diplomatic outcome at the point where, where the Ukrainian resistance is still funded, rather than wait until for that to peter out, as it eventually will do, and then they'll be in probably a worse bargaining position with Russia. Yeah, so many of us have been saying that, but cooler heads would not prevail. It really highlights how deeply negligent uh, the U.S. and Western allies that thwarted early peace attempts were, knowing that they were only going to be able to keep the float of U Ukraine's war machine afloat for a limited period of time. I do think that the funding demands of the crisis in Israel-Palestine is squeezing uh, the, the U.S. military a little bit. Um, there was a statement uh, made, uh, maybe it was by Antony Blinken, that it can, it can do both. But I think the way that you're seeing people change their rhetoric and the way that you've seen the emphasis shift from Ukraine to Israel over the course of the past week is telling a very different story. And I think it probably is also not irrelevant to the Biden administration that it's looking at really terrible poll numbers in states like Pennsylvania and Michigan that it needed to win to win in 2020, losing by almost double digits. You know, not, not margin of error numbers, but seven, eight, really, nine percent. Yeah, terrible in those is states. understating it, frankly. These are the worst numbers he's ever had versus Trump in these states. It was not like this for the last election. Uh, I'd look, be real worried. And looking at the public opinion around the war in Ukraine and seeing that it yeah. is not an issue that helps Joe Biden, I do wonder if that's finally having an impact. Speaking of issues that won't help anybody, uh, Lindsey Graham, the most hawkish voice within the uh, Republican Party, he had this to say in response to the ongoing crisis in Israel vis-a-vis -vis Hamas, uh, that we should actually bomb Iran. Let's play it. What I would do is I would bomb Iran's oil infrastructure. The money financing terrorism comes from Iran. It's time for this terrorist state to pay a price for financing and supporting all this chaos. Yes, if you're the Iranians, if we're up to me, this war escalates, I'm coming after you. So 
if it weren't already enough uh, that we that Israel is in the process with American state state uh, money back backing it of leveling Gaza, he also wants to provoke a war with Iran. To be fair to Lindsey Graham, he's wanted to start a war with Iran. Um, independent of anything else happening anywhere in the world. It's like, oh, it's raining today. We should start a war with Iran. It, it is pretty incredible that those kinds of comments and the massive global implications of those comments and the implications for the U.S. budget, which these kind of uh, classic conservative uh, budget hawks used to say they cared so much about go completely out of the window, and they make these kind of statements with impunity. But even if you put the humanitarian implications of what he said to the side, it's it's really galling that we do live in a political context. People say, oh, there's no accountability for Trump. Trump is just the tip of the iceberg. There doesn't seem to be much in the way of pushback or consequences for people making even the most outlandish of policy suggestions. Well, one person who is pushing back from within the GOP, Senator Rand Paul, he said this encouraging restraint on the subject. Let's play it. You do. You know, I have nothing but sympathy for the Israeli people at this point in time. I think that the primary objective at this time has to be to get the people that attacked them. They were in Gaza. Uh, before we think about spreading this to the rest of the world, maybe we ought to think about exactly what's going on on the ground there. I do think that there is immediate reaction sometimes to let's get everybody, let's get everybody who's responsible. And without question, Iran had their hands in this. But you remember after 9-11, there were people who wanted to attack Iraq. They said Iraq caused 9-11. Turned out Iraq didn't have anything to do with 9-11. So let's see where the facts lie. Let's investigate this. And let Israel need to do what they need to do, which is to, to uh, have a punishing response to the people in Gaza to say no more. We're not going to let this happen again. When you follow the money, if the money... So also, in, I'm not sure if it was that clip or it might have been a different clip with Rand Paul, he also pointed out, responding to calls to, um, to bomb Iran's nuclear capabilities, that it just being, and Rand Paul was just being very frank with the viewers, the American people, like, the cat's out of the bag. You, you can't, like, totally just reset their nuclear capabilities. Part of it is knowledge that they've already accrued. The materials can be hidden and are very small. Like, just blowing up the facilities is not going to uh, even accomplish necessarily the goal of devastating their nuclear program. So I'm, uh, you know, glad to see, again, the, the GOP is not is there's no there's not unanimity on a lot of issues including foreign policy so i wanted to contrast you know lindsey graham's hawkishness with with what i suspect is a more popular view maybe not among republican elites i don't know but among the actual base of the party yeah i do appreciate paul there pointing to the need to base foreign policy decisions on facts. I mean, we just uh, talked about how President Biden spewed a completely unconfirmed rumor about the existence of 40 beheaded uh, Israeli children from the podium, something that had to be retracted. I think the retraction in and of itself and the embarrassment that it causes for Biden points to the likelihood that the rumor is false, right? If he could have called up uh, Israel and said, hey, can you just show me the picture real quick and make it so that I wasn't a liar? I, I think that that would have happened. So the retraction, I think, does really speak volumes. And people in that, uh, reflecting on that moment that just happened last night are being reminded of the testimony of babies, incubator babies being thrown out of window um, from, the, from a Kuwaiti young woman, which was used to justify our engagement in the Gulf War in the 90s. And people are really exercise, you know, advising caution, saying oftentimes 
lies and rumors about the quote-unquote barbarity of a people is used to dehumanize them and justify uh, attacks that are unsupported by our geopolitical interests or facts on the ground. Uh, and cooler heads must prevail and not fall for every preconceived notion that conforms with whatever ideals you have about a group that you don't like, because ultimately we have seen in history over and over and over again where that brings us as a nation. Right. Uh, I think there was one more subject we wanted to touch on here. Do you want to? Yeah. Speaking intro that? of unconfirmed rumors, there was another uh, brouhaha where a celebrity decided to weigh in and show their support for Israel. But just like Jamie Lee Curtis did with the pictures of the babies in cages that turned out to be Palestinian babies in cages, not Israeli babies in cages, he tweeted a picture saying, "I stand with Israel," of uh, devastated terrain, which unsurprisingly, was a picture of Gaza devastated. When this uh, was pointed out to him, he removed the image and replaced it with an image that had no background, just a color with the words praying for Israel still on top of it. No follow-up saying that he was also showing any sympathy for the people who were actually pictured in the devastation that initially uh, incited his sympathies. Do you remember when Justin Bieber visited the Anne Frank house? No. What did he do? He wrote in the guest book no. that um, I hope no. that Anne Frank would have been a believer. No! No! That's a true story. Yikes. Well, thank goodness we aren't looking to uh, Justin Bieber for any kind of foreign policy advice uh, or... Maybe uh, hair tips. <laughs> maybe hair tips. You know, great music. What can I say? But uh, hopefully he stays out of politics going forward. Stick around. Bob rising for you after this. This Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, coming for Joe Rogan. Last month, Canada's Federal Broadcast Regulatory Agency announced a new mandate requiring online streaming services, including podcast platforms, to register with the government by November 28th. The order applies to streamers generating $10 million or more from the consumers of their content through their platforms. Independent creators are worried that their online success will now depend on the degree to which their content is deemed Canadian by the government, according to reporting from SAS Rav Aurora, who writes that the new mandate could mean Canadians will no longer be able to access certain popular Spotify podcasts. Podcast giant Joe Rogan reacted to Trudeau's new podcast regulation plan, Canada's recent government policies as a whole. Watch. They then want them to hand over information about their content and the people listening <laughs> to their to, right to their oh to, the, to the government. You imagine Trudeau. getting a hold of Alex Jones's email list. Not just the truckers, but people who donated to the truckers got their bank accounts closed. Yeah, yeah. Well, that is wild. Yeah, you got locked out of all of your money because you donated to a cause where you didn't think that people should have to take an experimental vaccine in order to be able to work to drive a truck. But really, yeah. <laughs> really, you get it. You think that's okay? Like that's so not okay. The fact that those people aren't up in arms, the whole country didn't freak out and demand a change. Like you can't have that's dictatorship stuff. That's right. what that is. It's banana republic stuff. Essayist and co-author of the Illusion of Consensus Substack, Rob Aurora, joins us now to weigh in on what the new rules might mean for Canadian content creators. Great to have you with us. Hey guys, great to be here. So tell us more about what exactly is being uh, proposed. You know, this sounds very concerning given, you know, not 
given specifically what Justin Trudeau's government has done on in terms of free expression. But frankly, even if the government had a sterling record on this subject, uh, I would be very worried about having any kind of you know licensing regime for content creators vis-a-vis -vis any government. Yeah, the interesting thing is is that on the surface there doesn't seem to be something directly concerning. I mean, it's it, it was designed to be a policy to help and uplift and amplify Canadian content creators, specifically Indigenous content creators um, and uh, content creators of minority backgrounds. And so they've said they want uh, podcast platforms like Spotify and I assume places like Rumble to register with them so that they can follow these mandated guidelines that would help uplift and promote Canadian content creators. But the problem is the the parameters for what is Canadian and you know what, what gets decided as Canadian enough is kind of ambiguous. And we know that this government in the past, like the CRTC in particular, the federal regulator for podcast platforms, uh, you know, this is what they want to do. They in the past have demonstrated a fairly censorious record, such as um, a, a couple of years ago when um, one radio program was talking about a case of a professor in uh, Quebec who was under fire for mentioning the N-word, um, which was in the title of a book. Um, uh, and they were talking about the case and they just mentioned the word in, a, in an explicitly non-racist way, but they were just talking about the story and they mentioned the N-word multiple times. And then the CRTC, the federal regulator, forced CBC, which is the CBC television and radio broadcast platform for all of Canada, which has this specific, this specific, this specific uh, radio program, which had these hosts mention the N-word to apologize and to show some evidence that they are going to do things differently and that they're going to take some serious measures to correct this problem. And so w whatever your personal view on the N-word is, whether you think that it, you should be able to say it in a non-racist way or you, you know, should never be able to say it in any context, it doesn't matter. The, the problem here is, is that the CRTC you know, forced the CBC to issue an apology. So the question is, how are they going to do this in the future? Are certain podcasts that violate specific policies or parameters of medical misinformation, for example, which is something that potentially, you know, my own podcast with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, which I am a sole proprietor of here in Canada, you know, we, we cover COVID issues and a lot of the mixed consensus and misinformation surrounding vaccines, masks, and various public health mandates, could that be then violative of what the Trudeau government considers accurate information on those topics? That's the question, because clearly in the past, um, they have erred on a very specific side, therefore, uh, in my opinion, stifling free speech. Uh, I, I hope you can speak a little bit more to what the bill actually says, because honestly, I'm reading about it, and, and it's confusing. It's, it seems to have a lot of different prongs and maybe operates in different ways. One description, this is, I'm reading from the CBC, says it requires streaming services such as Netflix and Spotify to pay to support Canadian, me Canadian media content like music and TV shows. So that's what you're talking about, about trying to facilitate, uplift, boost Canadian content when you were talking about Indigenous content and the like? Yes, yeah, yeah, that's, that seems to be part of it, although there's a lot of vagueness and confusion around how exactly this is going to be imposed. Right. And we have at least a little bit of history from the past few months when 
Bill C-18 was passed. And um, I don't know if you guys covered it on the show, but basically all Canadian users, including myself right now, cannot access um, media sources on Instagram. And, and, I, and I think The Hill is included in that, actually. Yeah, yeah. So I, if I go on Instagram, if I go on The Hill's Instagram account, I can't look at any of your posts because Bill C-18 mandated um, places like Instagram and Facebook to impose this like 4% tax fee, essentially, in that they would have to give back a certain amount to uh, Canadian um, uh, media outlets uh, as a way to, to compensate them for their work. And Instagram and Meta, you know, they said, well, you know, we're already providing you a platform where, you know, because of us, you're generating how many millions of dollars for airing your content here. So we're not going to, you know, further compensate you guys for, for a service that we're giving you. And so the result of that was, is that Instagram and Meta failed to comply and re refused to comply with uh, this mandate. So well, what's happened here is, is now, you know, because the government mandated them to compensate and they haven't, now Canadians can access um, uh, various media sources on uh, Instagram and Meta. So the concern now here with podcasting is if Spotify uh, and Rumble and other places refuse to comply with this federal Canadian mandate, what, what is that going to mean for the future of accessibility for various uh, podcasts? But what does compliance look like? I'm just trying to understand because I do think the enforcement aspect of it might help me to understand how this would even be implemented in the first place. Take this with a grain of salt, of course, but I'm looking at the um, Canadian Radio, Television and Communications Commission's uh, kind of true or false fact check sheet about this issue. And they're claiming that they will only regulate broadcasters, not content creators and digital creators, um, but traditional broadcasting services and online streaming services. What do you, what do you say of that? Wait, to say to that rather. Yeah, I, I think there's an interesting analogy that's been made before is like, you know, if, if you say like the difference between saying I want to regulate a library versus I want to regulate the actual books. So here, you know, it's like they want to impose um, a certain mandate on the library to, you know, prioritize and amplify and preferentially boost certain kinds of content and not others. And they specifically said in the CRTC, they follow the the Broadcasting uh, Act, which says that you have to have content that amplif that reflects the racial, gender, and sexual diversity, and uh, uplifts you know minority vo voices of of marginalized backgrounds in Canada. And as I as I outlined in my piece, that's you know you know that's very confusing and that's a very slippery slope because minority groups across Canada have very differing views on. A whole range of topics and it's not there's this kind of leftist uh in my view this kind of progressive myth that you know bipoc lgbtq plus people like they're all sort of unified on certain views when in actuality they're not like we had protests across canada here recently um in opposition to soji which is um you know teaching kids about gen gender ideology and about changing their gender etc and you had large groups of muslim parents protesting against this and saying that they they find this curriculum um, promoting uh, radical gender ideology as Islamophobic. So it's like, what's what's considered uplifting minority content? Is, is their content going to be uplifted, the, the content of Muslim creators who want to oppose this stuff, etc.? You know, this raises all sorts of questions for how they're going to enforce these mandates of promoting, you know, uh, a diversity of voices, uh, promoting different... Um, 
uh, minority voices oh. when there's there's so much ambiguity on on what's going to be labeled as minority and sufficiently Canadian enough for the government to mandate yeah. places like Spotify and Rumble to uh, preferentially boost certain creators over others. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of the um, in the U.S. the various film subsidies in the states, efforts to establish um, uh, filmmaking um, industries in the states, which were uh, the, the sub these incentive subsidy packages would just like just tax money directly being given to film industries to headquarter in various states, but then like snuck in there sometimes are provisions that the the movie in question has to make that state look good. Um, that's kind of what came to mind as you were describing this. Uh, Rob Aurora, thank you so much for joining us and elucidating us on what's going on in Canada. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, guys. Tomorrow on Rising, Jessica Burbank and Spencer Brown will take the reins for Rising Fridays. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the move, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.